Queer Rights Sessions, QWS podcast, in partnership with Blarney Books and Art in Port Ferry. I'm your host, Rob, aka RWR McDonald. And I'm Jonathan Butler, and this is a Words and Nerds spin off series. Thanks, Danny. We're coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people, and I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Each month, QWS Podcast will bring you reviews, shout-outs of LGBTQIA plus writers, and feature an interview with a queer writer from our rainbow communities. And now on with the show. Hello, my name is Jonathan Butler. My pronouns are he, him, and it's my absolute pleasure to introduce Dr. Eve Reese to the Queer Rights Session Podcast. Welcome, Eve. Hi, Jono. Thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. Now, Eve, your career is so rich and multifaceted that it's made squeezing all my questions into this brief interview quite the challenge, but I'm going to give it my best shot. So you're an award-winning writer who's been widely published in literary journals and news outlets and memoirists, an anthology editor, a thought leader, a historian, a podcaster, a literary judge, a fitness enthusiast, a general mover and shaker, based in Nar, Melbourne, on unceded Wurundjeri land. Now, when someone asks you, what do you do at parties, what on earth do you say? <laughs> That's a great question because um, my answer is very context-dependent because, <laughs> as you've just said in that very generous intro, Jono, um, I do a lot of different things. And it often, um, my answer at parties, yeah, kind of depends on who I'm speaking with and what I want to talk about on that particular evening. Because, you know, sometimes I say I'm a writer, but then invariably the next question is, you know, what what do you write? And as you noted, I published a memoir and then people say, what's the memoir about? And it's, um, as some people might know, it's a memoir about being trans and gender transition. And, you know, you don't necessarily want to, you know, launch into a DM about one's gender identity with like a stranger you've just met at a party. So if I feel like I don't want to go down that route of conversation, I tend to say I'm an academic or I'm a historian um, or that I work in universities. But, um, you know, all these things are equally true. And, you know, to me, they're kind of all like they're hard to separate. They sort of just make sense as, you know, parts of one big kind of messy job that somehow has all come together. Well, that actually um, fits quite nicely into the first question. That was a bit of a bonus question. The first question that we actually ask most of our guests is um, how has your work influenced your identity? Oh, wow. What a question. Um, So I'm probably the most honest response to that question is that I'm a terrible, terrible workaholic. (laughs) My identity and my work are really hard to disentangle. Um, which is not necessarily something I'm proud of, or at least not proud of all the time. I, um, you know, have always been a person kind of in love with the written word. You know, I was a total bookworm as a kid. I was just like completely enraptured by the magic of writing and storytelling. And I always knew that that was what I wanted to dedicate my life to, to working with words and story. And, I think I became a historian, um, which is my day job. I I teach and research history at La Trobe University in Nam. I think I sort of ended up in that career path because I realised pretty early on that being an academic was one of the few ways you could kind of get an actual, like a salaried income for being a writer and a storyteller. 
Um, you know, I often think in my ideal universe, I would just be a full-time freelance writer or, you know, novelist, but, you know, I am very aware of the cold, hard economic facts that face all of us in the literary world that that's, you know, almost impossible to survive on, on that kind of freelance writing income. And so, you know, I mean, that said, it's also very, very hard to get an ongoing job in academia these days. Um, it's an incredibly competitive industry, but I kind of just have been lucky enough to be one of the sort of the few of my generation, really, it feels like, who've um, got an ongoing job teaching research and history. And that's given me then, I suppose, a platform to do other forms of writing and sort of try and do work that's, I suppose, more in the public intellectual space um, that, you know, engages with thing like things like podcasting that reach a bigger audience. Amazing. And I'm excited to delve into some of those areas uh, more throughout this interview, but I think a good place to start would be in 2020. Now, it was a pretty lousy year for most of us, um, but it seems like quite a triumphant one for you. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but was that the year that you won the ABR Calabar Essay Prize um, and that sort of really expanded your career into a whole new direction? Would you say that was correct? Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about that essay? Yeah, so that was a very um, odd moment in my life, um, really, in retrospect. So um, in so in late 2018, I realised that I was trans. I'd been assigned female at birth and it always, you know, accepted that. But then just several years of kind of agonising soul-searching in my late 20s, I realised in 2018 at the age of 30 that I was transgender. And... I started writing about that to kind of make sense of my experience and because I'd been reading a lot of trans memoirs and personal essays and they'd really helped me and I thought, you know, I could write about it and maybe help some other people. So at this point I was only really an academic writer. I'd um, published a lot but only kind of in academic peer-reviewed journals and similar places. Um, But I started writing these essays and I actually wrote this one that I submitted to um, Growing Up Queer in Australia, the Black Ink anthology edited by Benjamin Law, part of a biggest series about growing up, whatever, in Australia. And that essay was rejected for that anthology. But Benjamin Law wrote me, you know, a nice email saying, you know, we thought this essay had promise, it almost made the cut, but it didn't quite get there, but, you know, keep going. So buoyed by that encouragement, I continued to work on that essay and revise and revise and revise. And I saw an advertisement for this thing called the Calibre Essay Prize, um, which was coming up soon. And I was like, oh, you know, of course I'd never win this. I've never published any essays before. I have no idea what I'm doing. But why don't I just enter the essay in this prize just to give me a deadline, just to give me some incentive to actually, like, finish it off. So I have vivid memories of um, working, doing the final edits to that essay on those very, very surreal, quite dystopian days in January 2020 when the bushfires, the Black Summer bushfires really bad and many people might remember that the air quality in Nam or Melbourne was, you know, horrific and, like, you could barely see and people were scrambling to buy, you know, masks and... In, in one of those very, very surreal days, I remember finishing off this essay and submitting it and thinking that was sort of the last I'd hear of it. 
And then, yeah, imagine my surprise when several months later I got a phone call from Peter Rose, the editor of the Australian Book Review, saying that out of over 600 entries from around the world, I had won that essay competition. Um, and then, of course, by that point, we were in the midst of lockdown. So I'd got this kind of life-changing news, but I sort of had no capacity to celebrate or do anything with anyone. I remember going out on this very cold, wintry night and buying a packet of cigarettes because I felt like I needed to do something to mark the occasion. And just kind of, I don't know, trying to perform the role of a, like, you know, chain-smoking writer by, like, smoking a cigarette uh, <laughs> on, on Rutgers Hill. And you're not, a, you're not a smoker, to clarify. I'm not a smoker, yeah. yeah. No, I, just, I just felt like I needed to do something dramatic. <laughs> and that was the best <laughs> I could do in the midst of lockdown. Um, yeah, but that's all a way of saying, yes, it did really change my life because um, from winning that prize, I got a book contract, essentially. Um, I already had a literary agent by that point. Um, but obviously when, yeah, winning a prize like that um, makes book publishers sit up and take notice and register your existence. And so we, um, with my agent, we put the uh, proposal for my memoir out to um, publishers in the sort of the, the the days after the ABR Caliber Prize was announced and, yeah, had several, was fortunate enough to have several offers um, to contract a memoir at the back of that. And then, yeah, from there things, you know, kind of snowballed and I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of speaking and writing opportunities over the past few years and, yeah, my life has really changed beyond recognition as a result. Yeah, so as you mentioned, that essay would later become the memoir all about Eve, Notes from oh, a yeah. Transition. Oh, yeah, I didn't say anything about what the essay was about. I should have that. <laughs> no, I'm going to do that now, so you're all good. Yeah, um, yeah so that was published in 2021 by Alan and Unwin. Um, and so for the readers who haven't read it, uh, sorry, for the listeners who haven't read it, um, it, the book is about when you were 30 and you came to understand that you were transgender um, and how you were forced to grapple with that. Um, and then you upended your life in 2018 with a gender transition. Um, it's a very intimate memoir. Um, it covers stories from getting high in Canada uh, through to your mum becoming your biggest cheerleader and everything in between. Um, what's it like having such an intimate aspect of your life now on the public record? <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> um I think there's something incredibly precious about the lack of self-consciousness you have when you write your first book. And because, you know, because you just can't possibly know then what it is like to have a book out in the world as a public artefact for anyone and everyone to dissect and have opinions about. Um, and I think that's true for any writers of any medium, like whether they're novelists or nonfiction writers. But I think it's particularly true of memoirists that, you know, we can think we're sort of intellectually prepared for what it's like to have our story as we've told it out in the world, but, yeah, we can't possibly know. And it's so nice to be blissfully ignorant and just writing the story and thinking, oh, I'm going to be like a published author, isn't this great, and be able to write in this really unselfconscious way um, that I think is almost impossible to ever recapture again once you've become an author and realise what it means to have an audience and what it means to make this thing called a book. Um, so these days it, it is very weird. It's very wonderful as well because it creates this kind of intense intimacy with strangers, you know, the kind of parasocial relationship. You know, we often develop with authors um, when we read their books or with podcasters or we listen to their shows 
And it's so beautiful to have readers, you know, email me or DM me and say, you know, I've just finished your book and it reminded me so much of my story and I feel so connected to you and thank you for articulating this experience that I've shared. You know, that's one of the most rewarding, validating, meaningful experiences of my life to have those kind of intimate, profound connections with people, with strangers that I'll never probably meet in person. That's absolutely beautiful. Um, Yeah, but at the same time it is, you know, bizarre to know that complete strangers know um, intimate details about myself. And the, the, the weirdest thing, though, I think, is that that version of yourself kind of gets stuck in time. So, you know, the, the the events of the memoir kind of, you know, really cover from 2018 when I came out to um, beginning of 2021 when I sort of submitted the manuscript. So just quite a, a brief period in my life. And, of course, that's over three years ago now or about three years ago now and a lot has happened since and I feel like a completely different person all over again because I think I just am one of those people who is constantly reinventing themselves. I mean, we all are to a certain extent. And so it's odd now to meet people in, you know, 2024 who are like, oh, I've just read your memoir and, you know, whatever. But then to to realise that they're, they're encountering such a, a kind of earlier and outdated version of myself and because the book is just kind of frozen in aspic, there's no real opportunity to kind of update it and um, register the, the changes in who I am as a person and the evolution in my thinking and all those things. What did you leave out of the memoir? As you said, it's just a short period of time and you haven't included, it's not a memoir and that it's your entire life and absolutely everything. I'd be curious to hear what, what was included and what wasn't. I mean, I didn't include a lot about my childhood. I mean, there's sections on that. But I very consciously didn't want to write a kind of go-to-woe memoir, like a kind of chronological one that started in childhood and went, you know, followed a linear narrative to the present day. And that was for a few reasons. The first is that I hate reading those types of memoirs. I think they're really boring, Um, just kind of too exhaustive. And, you know, a lot of people's childhoods are really boring and I don't care who their ancestors were and, you know, those kind of details. Um, But I suppose it was also um, that decision not to write that kind of book that focused on my childhood stemmed from an awareness that trans narratives are often quite focused on childhood and the kind of cisgender gaze or cisgender audience that I knew I was writing for can tend to be quite kind of fixated on childhood and sort of looking for evidence in childhood of kind of proof or otherwise of someone's transness. And I suppose I kind of didn't really want to pander to that kind of understanding of what it meant to be trans and wanted to tell a different kind of story, which was focused much more on the the kind of the messiness of the moment of transition and the grappling with, well, what does this mean and what now and how does this change on my relationships and other things in my life? Yeah, that, that flows quite nicely into my next question because I do want to ask about audience. Um, you know, as queer writers, we are often, you know, faced with that question of, you know, are we writing for our community or do we need to make it accessible to a cis heterosexual reader? Um, did you have a reader in mind? I, I heard you mention it was more for that cis heterosexual reader as well. Is Was that correct? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I suppose I had two audiences in mind, really. Um, one was sort of 
I suppose, my mother's demographic. So my mother is, you know, a cishet, white, affluent baby boomer, um, you know, the kind of the classic book-going, book-buying, writers festival-going member of the public in Australia. And she was really confronted by my transness at first, as, as I write about in the book. And, you know, even though she kind of identifies as politically progressive and on the left, she just kind of hadn't met any trans people that she knew of really and was very ignorant about trans issues and was really thrown by this declaration but kind of came so far so quickly in understanding, you know, what was going on and why trans rights are important and why I was worth supporting and all those things. And so I suppose seeing her rapid evolution um, on these questions made me realise that I suppose there was a kind of target audience of women of her generation and demographic and social background who could you know, could have their minds changed on this issue. Um, And, you know, and I suppose to be honest, I recognise that I have a particular ease at talking to that audience because I'm a really palatable trans person because I'm like a white, middle-class, academic, you know, highly educated, all those things. I, you know, I seem normative enough that I don't frighten the horses. And so I suppose I have, through the book and through other speaking activities, quite strategically targeted that kind of audience and that demographic and seen myself as a bit of a Trojan horse, as a kind of safe entry point to open people's minds to trans issues and, you know, start to get them thinking differently about gender identity. My second target audience, I suppose, was kind of versions of me, like earlier on in the on the transition journey, like people, you know, millennials or people a bit older or younger who were just beginning to question their gender identity and think, you know, maybe they're not quite cis. And, you know, I wanted to kind of read a story of someone a little bit ahead of them and, you know, be shown that it's okay and you know, to realise that other people have grappled with similar fears and anxieties and just to be given a bit of a, I suppose, permission slip to explore their gender identity. So they were kind of the two audiences I was writing for. Amazing. And then in 2022, um, you were the co-editor of Nothing to Hide, Voices of Trans and Gender Diverse Australia, which was also published by Alan and Unwin. Um, I imagine that was a hugely rewarding experience and process discovering all this phenomenal talent that's out there. Um, what's it like being um, becoming not only a member of the queer community but becoming a member of the queer writing community? Working on that project and sort of, yeah, entering into queer writing communities was really one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. You know, it was great to write and publish and promote my own memoir. But, you know, it's a solitary experience, hard to share with other people. And, yeah, I just loved the the collaboration of working on an anthology. Um, I was one of four editors. There was also Sam Elkin, Alex Gallagher and Bobak Sayed. And we just had so much fun, I think, working together. I mean, this was all during lockdowns and we were geographically dispersed. So Sam and I were in Nama, Melbourne, but Alex was in Sydney and Bobak was in the US. So we had all our meetings on Zoom. 
um, which, you know, it could have been challenging, but somehow it all just kind of worked. Like we had complementary skill sets. Um, we didn't have any major disagreements about who to include or who not to include. And at a time of, you know, otherwise huge social isolation during the lockdowns, during which, you know, I was living alone, it was um, just so rewarding to be making something with other people and discovering all these incredible writers in the process. Um, So we, to uh, choose the writers for the anthology, so we had about 30 um, writers and they're all up and it was a mix of we commissioned some pieces from writers we really admired and we knew we wanted to have in there but we also did an open call out uh, you know so we could you know anyone who wanted could submit their work and we could ensure we were making it as a kind of open and inclusive space Um, and yeah and I like discovered so many writers through that call out process like it was incredibly hard narrowing it down to the ones we included and some of those writers um, we featured, for instance, Jack Nichols is now a friend and a member of, of a queer writing group. Um, so it was a really wonderful way, I suppose, not just, to, you know, that project was fantastic in itself, but it sort of led me into this whole new community of writers um, that give me so much kind of sustenance and friendship and enjoy in lots of ways. Um because, you know, as as I've mentioned, because my kind of non-academic writing career really started during the pandemic, you know, I suppose it took longer than normal. It was harder than usual to feel like I had a kind of in-person community of like-minded fellow writers. And the anthology was was definitely the best thing I've done in, in getting that community for myself. Do you have any um, further aspirations in this area, either community building or another project or anything like that that you want to talk about? Yeah, so I'm, um, I suppose I'm interested increasingly in trans fiction. Um, You know, there's been a huge amount of trans memoir and other life writing published in Australia and the US and UK and around the world over the last decade, it's been this sort of exploding genre. And, you know, obviously I participated in it and I have a huge amount of love for that genre. But, you know, the, the, the memoir format is sort of limited in some ways um, and can, you know, potentially be, a, you know, be a bit othering inherently as like the, the trans people are kind of a special odd community that need to have their stories told in memoir form. And what I'm really interested in in reading about and doing myself now is thinking about incorporating trans characters in fiction, just as, you know, ordinary characters who happen to be trans. Um, So at the moment I'm working on a novel that's a campus satire, a sort of satire of contemporary neoliberal academia in Australia, which obviously draws upon my interest and experience working in academia, but most of the characters are queer and one of the protagonists is trans and and is a kind of like an awful person. Like it's been really fun to kind of write an unlikable trans character rather than, you know, adhere to this kind of unspoken um, dictate that, you know, all trans people in art must be excellent and upstanding citizens to kind of counter the historic stigmatisation of trans people. It's nice just to make someone be trans and terrible for once. <laughs> because we are just messy, you know, flawed humans <laughs> like everyone else. Yeah, amazing. Look forward to that project as it develops. Um, 
you're also a judge for the Victorian Premier Literary Awards, the Calibre Essay Prize and the Stella Prize. You're ultimately shaping what becomes our nation's stories. Um, I imagine um, being one of the judges of these prizes has given you a pretty good sense of the state of Australian literature, would you say? And if so, what would you kind of summarise it as? Daunting task to summarise the state of Australian literature. I mean, I think broadly I'm really, really positive about Australian literature. Um, So I'm judging this year's or the 2024 Stella Prize and as we record this interview, we're sort of narrowing down the entries towards a long list and it's really hard to choose. Like it's an incredibly strong year in Australian publishing and I think the Stella Prize, perhaps more than the VPLAs, gives you this great overview because, it, you know, even though it's just women and non-binary writing, it, it does contain all genres. You know, we've got fiction and memoir and other non-fiction and poetry and YA. Um, so it gives you this real sense of a kind of 360 view of what's going on. And the state of Australian literature is really experimental and political and increasingly diverse. I mean, I think it's amazing to look just in the 10 or so years that the Stella Prize has been around, um, how much more diverse uh, the writing landscape is. You know, we have so many more uh, queer and trans and non-binary writers, so many more First Nations writers, other writers of colours, disabled writers. Um, It's just wonderful to see different types of Australian stories being told. Um, I mean, I think, and beyond that general sense of optimism, it has been striking, I suppose, in the literary prizes I've judged the last few years. I also judged the Calibre Essay Prize last year, that there is an immense amount of grief in the contemporary world. Like there's a huge amount of writing about climate grief and climate anxieties, but also about, you know, personal grief and loss, illness, various types of trauma, you know, there are a huge amount of trauma narratives out there, particularly trauma memoirs of various sorts, um, but also trauma writing in in fiction as well. And I suppose I have really mixed feelings about the dominance of trauma in our storytelling landscape. You know, on the one hand, I think it's wonderful that these stories, that we now live in a time where these stories can get airing. And obviously we've always, humans have always experienced significant traumas of many sorts, but often, you know, they've been unable to be told and they've been tidied away and repressed and kind of, you know, locked in shame. So I think it's wonderful that we're now able to tell difficult stories that we couldn't tell before. And people who've experienced similar traumas can see themselves reflected and find a sense of kind of solidarity and community. And perhaps the authors of these individual trauma narratives can experience some kind of, you know, healing or catharsis or validation through telling their own story. Um, But then I suppose I wonder on a bigger kind of societal level, what does it do when our stories hinge on trauma? Does it make it more difficult for us to imagine different types of more positive collective and individual futures? You know, does it kind of keep us stuck in a in a cycle of focusing on our pain and our suffering? Um, 
these are the kind of questions. I don't have any great answers for that, but these are the kind of questions I've been thinking about as I've been reading these books over the last few years. And I suppose I am really interested in, you know, kind of different types of, um, you know, speculative or future-oriented storytelling, which imagines different types of worlds or different ways of being rather than just kind of put a mirror to the the various awfulnesses of our world as it is and it has been. Yeah, I think that's really interesting questions to ask as editors and writers and those out there listening as well, um, you know, what what is the impact of that? And obviously it has a huge amount of benefits, but, you know, are there other sides of it as well? Um, what would you say to those who think that literature has become a victim of tokenism? I mean, it hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think the literary community, like publishers, editors, literary judges, are certainly much more aware of questions of diversity and inclusion and the structural forces that are enabling some people to get published and heard or not. There's much more detailed, you know, and explicit conversations about those things and much more efforts to uh, move the local publishing landscape beyond its historic dominance by white middle-class men. It's easy to actually overestimate how much work has been done in that space. For many queer and trans writers, they still experience the publishing industry as a fairly unsafe space, a fairly hostile space that might make gestures towards inclusion but isn't kind of committed to the deeper kind of cultural educational work of, um, of, you know, building cultural safety. And from what I hear from, you know, First Nations writers and writers of colour, the same is true of their experience, that it's still, you know, that that on the outside it can seem overly, like, woke and putting in inverted commas. But in reality, you know, the people with power in the industry still tend to be similar, you know, demographics as they've always been. But more significantly, the kind of the logics of the industry are still governed by, you know, white middle-class Australia, black. And, you know, I, I, I recognise that I am a beneficiary of that in many ways, that I, you know, as a trans person, as a queer person, including me in spaces like judging panels is an easy way to be signalling diversity. But in many other respects, I'm a pretty kind of conventional presence in those spaces um, and don't really challenge the logic of those spaces. So one thing I'm really interested in doing over the coming years as I hopefully continue to work in the literary world is I suppose continue to do what is what I think of as my kind of Trojan horse project of, you know, pushing myself in but then opening up space for other people to come in behind me and, you know, slowly, incrementally changing the conservative logics of various institutions and organisations so that they are more kind of genuinely inclusive rather than just in a kind of performative way. Mm. And, you know, it's and it's slow incremental work and 
I fully appreciate and respect that other people would have different approaches to this project and would be much more of the like, let's blow it all up school. And I think that's great. I think we need both. I think we need kind of pragmatic reformers from the inside like me. And I think we need radicals who want to blow shit up and destroy it all. And I I love that both people exist. Um, thank you for that um, very honest and thorough answer. I think that was really important and you raised some really interesting ideas. I do want to shift gears to your work as a historian now. Um, you're a senior history lecturer at La Trobe University and the co-host of Archive Fever History Podcast, where you sit on the other side and interview people doing some pretty fascinating research. Uh, you have a book called Travelling to Tomorrow, which will be published uh, by New South in 2024. Um, I'd love to know, how do you juggle being a writer and academic and moving between these two worlds? Like, I know you said that there's a lot of similarities with storytelling, but, you know, um, I imagine there is a bit of, you know, shifts that you'd have to make. Yeah, I with great difficulty is <laughs> the short answer. Um, it's, yeah, uh, it's hard. Um because they're both, you know, I do lots of different things at the same time. They're all demanding. They kind of force me to be a bit of a workaholic. Um, I did go part-time as an academic over the last few years uh, to kind of open up more space to do non-academic writing and kind of public-facing work. But this year, 2024, I'm returning to full-time as an academic, which means I'll be teaching a lot more, which means I'll have less time to do other things. So it's all just kind of a work in progress. I, I mean, for me, I suppose I'm really interested in challenging and reinventing ideas about, like, what academic work is and what an academic can do. So... Um, over the last few decades in Australia, the kinds of academic work that have only really been rewarded are publishing, you know, peer-reviewed articles or occasionally books in kind of scholarly journals or scholarly monographs. And these are types of writing that are really, you know, often behind a paywall or really expensive and written in such a kind of technical manner that they're kind of inaccessible to a general audience. So that and kind of winning research grants have been the kinds of academic labours that have been rewarded and, you know, people therefore encouraged to do. You know, I believe they're obviously important to some extent, but I also think that having academics kind of sequestered away behind these paywalls and in their ivory towers is kind of a huge waste of intellectual capital. Um, I believe that academics should be public intellectuals and be contributing to public debate and writing essays and writing op-eds and speaking at writers' festivals and podcasts and all those things. Why do you think that you were originally drawn to history as a, a field? Good question. I think, if I'm honest, the, the original reason was that it felt kind of escapist. Um, I think as a child I loved historical narratives because they enabled me to disassociate, you know. They kind of took me to other worlds and times and places and provided a sense of escape and comfort. Of course, as I've gotten older and I've studied history for a living, <laughs> I've realised, you know, that's not the case or it shouldn't be the case. You know, history shouldn't be escapist. Good history should be confronting because it should force us to recognise hard truths about 
you know, our culture, our nation, the world. Um, you know, I mean, the obvious example is in Australia is, you know, the, the truth-telling that needs to be done about invasion and genocide and ongoing dispossession in this um, country and that, you know, we've clearly so failed to um, undertake as a broader culture that kind of that uh, grappling without, with the true history of this place. You know, today, I mean, history for me maybe is both things. I do, you know, I do still just kind of love the escapist joys of going down a trove wormhole and getting really immersed in like what was happening in, you know, May 1927 and reading all the kind of wonderful advertisements and, you know, newspaper articles and gossip columns and, you know, I'm going into another world. But I am passionate about history first and foremost because I think it's, you know, one of the best tools we have to help us understand the world and to help us build better futures. I did have a few more questions on history, but you've so eloquently answered both of them. So thank you for that. <laughs> I did want to ask um, if, was there, are there any books um, that you read either early in your life or early in your um, gender journey um, that made you feel seen or gave you a sense of community that you wanted to give a shout out to now? One book I read early in my transition that had a huge effect on me uh, was a novel by a US trans writer called Geordie Rosenberg. The novel is called Confessions of the Fox. And it's this like very, very gay, very trans kind of like semi-historical novel, but also a campus novel, a kind of satire of, of campus life in America. Um that taught me so many things. Like I think it taught me that trans life and trans culture could be fun and like playful and wry and satirical because all the sort of trans stories I'd read up until that point had been really like heavy and serious and laden with trauma. And this was just like such a delightful romp. It showed me a kind of different way of making trans culture. Um, and, you know, it also showed me like was one of the first times I'd read like a novel with trans characters in it, like and a, and a mainstream novel, not like a kind of niche trans novel over here. And it, it just made me, I suppose it gave me a permission slip to think about, you know, the possibilities of writing all sorts of stories with trans people in them and the possibility of living all sorts of trans lives. Like it was just a really kind of joyful, liberatory text that, gave me a lot of hope for my own personal trans future, but also, yeah, the future of trans communities and trans culture. When or where have you felt most at home in your community? I think probably the answer to that is in a writing group that you're part of, Jonathan. Um, disclosure. Disclosure. <laughs> um, yeah, so I have this really wonderful queer writing group that Jono is a member of, Um we meet once a month um, in Melbourne and, yeah, I just feel so, um, you know, it, so sort of seen and myself in that space. It's a space where I can be, you know, my queer and trans self but also like my nerdy writing self and be around people who are all really nurturing of each other and but all really committed to kind of pushing ourselves and each other to do better work. And, you know, I, like, I'll be honest that there can be 
you know, lateral violence and bitchiness in both the right, the general writing community in the lit world and the queer and trans community because they're all really small worlds and everyone knows each other and there's just the inevitable differences of personality and politics that comes up and, you know, competition for limited resources. So I've certainly had negative experiences in those spaces over the years. But, yeah, but this writing group has just been um, so wonderfully heartwarming and joyful and I'm so grateful for it. And any writers who are listening, I'd really, really encourage you to get a writing group going. Um, It's such a good way to maintain momentum with your writing, like to have deadlines to show things to people, to kind of reignite your love of writing and to feel inspired again by reading other people's work and getting excited by it. And just to create, yeah, a sense of social community and support around writing. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Absolutely. Me too. (laughs) I think it's also great in you editing and giving feedback that like mindset and doing it so regularly is so good for your own work and editing your own work because you just start you can really apply that type of mindset to your own uh, pieces which I really enjoy as well so yeah Yeah. very sound advice yes (laughs) Um, so now we've reached the bookend questions Um, a question we ask everyone that is um, on the podcast is what is what was your hope for All About Eve when it came out into the world? My hope was really just that it would help people, that it would help, you know, at least a couple of people see themselves, understand their own gender confusion a bit more, feel less alone, and for friends and family of trans people to give them, you know, some tools, some education about what was going on and to help them make sense of it. And, you know, I think... that was successful. I mean, I've met, um, you know, so many people at writers' festivals and other book events and got so many emails over the years, people saying things like that, that that it's helped them or people in their life. And, yeah, it's hard to imagine um, a more rewarding outcome for the book, really. I mean, that's all I ever really wanted to do was to make my writing make people feel less alone in the way that other trans and queer writing had made me feel less alone at times when I felt like, you know, maybe I was the only person on the planet who'd experienced these sensations. Another question that we ask all our guests is a writing question and it's about any advice or top tips for aspiring writers, storytellers out there. Obviously you've been um, incredibly successful in lots of different endeavours, so we all want to know what's your secret to success? <laughs> um, I mean, I think a lot of whatever success I've had has just kind of been down to luck and timing. Um, I don't believe it. <laughs> Well, some of it at least. Um, (laughs) I think two main pieces of advice I'd give for aspiring writers. The first one is just to send your work out to a lot of different places. Um, I know it can seem really daunting to get started at like publishing essays or criticism in, you know, Australian literary journals or magazines or things like that. But in my experience, they're actually pretty open to new voices and it's not hard to, like, find editors' emails address or calls for submissions. So just get your work out there. You know, don't be too precious about it. Just pitch pieces, you know, enter essay prizes, enter call for submissions. Just do a lot of it. And then once you've got one or two pieces published, then you've sort of got a bit of a track record and it becomes easier and easier to get more things published. Um 
you know, and, and of course, in that process, I should say, you know, you will experience rejection. I mean, we all do, but you just, you know, like, as I said, the essay that won the Caliber Prize was first rejected for an anthology. So crucial to that process of just putting your work out there is to fully expect and anticipate rejection and not take it personally. Um, because, you know, even, even the best writers still get rejected as a matter of course. Um, the second piece of advice I'd give is just to um, obsessively edit your work. Um, I think, I mean, I can probably be a bit extreme in this regard. I think I'm relaxing more as, as I get older and lazier and more experienced. But, um, yeah, in general, I think more editing is always better. So, like, you know, do things like print out your work, mark it up with a pen, change the font, I find a really good way to like defamiliarize the writing. Because when you're editing, the big challenge is to read your work with fresh eyes as a stranger would or an editor would and not read it with all the bits, you know, that are missing being filled in by your brain. So things to defamiliarize, like, yeah, having a night or two away from it, printing it out, changing the font, changing the layout in some other ways, and then just going back again and again. Even reading it out is really useful. I sometimes use Word, which I embarrassingly still use, has um, a, a read aloud feature now, which I often use. It's one, it's really good at picking up typos that I might have read a sentence like 30 times, but there'll be word missing that I just didn't see, but you hear it when Word reads it out. But it's also really good for picking up infelicities in the rhythm of sentences. Like if something just sounds off, you can really hear it when the clunky word voice is reading it aloud. Um, we also have a shout out question. Um, so how can, firstly, how can listeners connect with you on socials or book events and that sort of thing? Um, and we can put them on the show notes. But the other part of the shout out question is, is there any um, LGBTIQA plus artists, books, art shows, organization or social media accounts that you'd like to give a shout out to as well? Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm no longer on Twitter or X. I left it when Elon Musk took over, but I'm still on Instagram and I'm just at Eve underscore reads. And I also have a website, which is just evereads.com, which has all my writing and all the upcoming events listed on it. Um, in terms of shout-outs, um, there's so many, but one, I'll limit myself to one, which is Sam Elkin, who is a dear friend and um, fellow member of the writing group and also co-editor of Nothing to Hide, is publishing his debut memoir uh, in 2024, um, with Upswell Publishing and it's called Detachable Penis. Um, it's a series of essays about Sam's work um, as a lawyer, um, working in, in queer legal spaces, but also about his transition journey. And Sam is such a sharp and funny writer. I absolutely adore all his work and I'm so excited to have this memoir out in the world. Me too. Well, thank you so much for your time, Eve. You've been incredibly insightful and generous and open, um, and I've learned so, so much just from our 50-minute uh, chat. Um, the closing question, though, is um, what is your hope for the LGBTQIA plus communities? My hope is that every LGBTQIA plus person who comes out um, feel safe to do so and is met with love and that, you know, 
the shame and stigma that is, you know, historically dogged our existence in our communities is no more. That we're that we're loved in a way that we all deserve to love, be loved. Just a small, it's just a small aspiration. <laughs> But also a very lovely aspiration to leave our chat on. So thank you so much, uh, Eve, for your time uh, and for the interview and cannot wait for to keep an eye on all your future projects. Thanks, Jenna. Please check out our show notes on Words and Nerds, Blarney Books and Art and rwrmcdonald.com for links, reviews and the interview transcript. Until next time, this is QWS Podcast.